You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast, where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of the 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant, Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left at NYC. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, this week we're doing something a little different. That's right. Uh, Back in October, we did our first big uh, in-depth package show of the season, where we took a look at the life and work and legacies of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. But this week, we're presenting our second package show, and it's all about critics. Yes, it is. Over the last month, Rob and I sat down with Ben Brantley, Christian Lewis, Nicole Saratori, Helen Shaw, and Jose Solis. Yes, we we reached out to these critics in particular because we wanted a nice cross-section, right, of folks who were at the Times, right, like the pinnacle of the critical establishment, and then folks like Christian Lewis, who's a younger writer who's a freelancer and just starting out. So we've got a nice mix of different folks that you'll hear from in this episode, and we talk about what they do, why they do it, how they do it, who they do it with. When they do it, you know? All the do-its. All the do-its. Well, the who, what, when, where, why, I guess. The essential five questions. Um, And throughout this episode, you're mostly going to hear their voices. So first, we'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Ben Brantley, co-chief theater critic of the New York Times. Hi, I'm Helen Shaw. I'm the theater critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. Hi, I'm Christian Lewis. I'm a freelance theater critic, uh, most of the time on Medium, but you can find me lots of other places, including an upcoming piece in American Theater Magazine. Hi, I'm Nicole Saratori. I'm a freelance critic who writes for uh, The Stage, Variety, Exeunt Magazine, and formerly The Village Voice. My name is Jose Solis. I'm a freelance theater critic. I mostly write for The New York Times, for TDF Stages, for Backstage recently, and for a magazine called America, which is a Jesuit magazine that is one of my favorite things, telling people that even the Pope reads this magazine. Also have a web series and a podcast called Token Theater Friends, produced by TCG and hosted by American Theater Magazine. That's our cast of critics. Now on to the episode. To get us started, what was your journey to becoming a theater critic? 
I uh, went to school for dramaturgy, uh, so I have a master's in dramaturgy, and that is not uh, a, a necessarily a step that leads to a career, I would say, uh, at least not in my case. So I had a lot of training in text and in drama, uh, and I loved going to the theater more than I loved making theater. And for a little while, I didn't think, I thought maybe that meant that I was incompatible with the form. <laughs> and so when I figured out that I could write criticism, which meant that I could go to a show every night, uh, that was when I kind of got bitten by the bug. So I was a English drama double major in college at Vassar, the same double major as Meryl Streep. Slight <laughs> For those there. keeping keeping note. For those keeping note. Yeah. Um, and I really couldn't decide when I was finishing my college journey, like halfway through what I wanted to do about English or theater. And so I came to the point of deciding I wanted to pursue graduate school in English, and I'm currently a PhD candidate, but I didn't want to give up on the theater thing. And I was a college student and wanted to see a lot of free theater. <laughs> and so I like put two and two together and started writing about theater and very quickly started getting free tickets to write about theater, and then I just kept doing it. I knew that I wanted to be a critic since I was 10 years old. The reason for that was that I got a journal um, for Christmas, I think, or I probably just like grabbed the book and turned it into a journal. And I found that soon enough, my journal stopped being about me and became about my thoughts on the things that I was consuming, the art that I was consuming. So I became a teenager and I started a blog. My father was gracious enough to buy me uh, my own domain when I was 14. And I started a site about movies. Oh, because uh, all of this was happening when I was in Honduras, which is where I was born and where I lived uh, till I was 18. Then I kept writing in my tiny blog and peep, I was commenting before Twitter and before social media. I kept commenting on posts of sites that I admired and, you know, people that were based in the States. And then when I was like 15 or so, one of them was like, do you want to write a blog post for my site? And I was like, sure. I moved to Costa Rica to go to film school. And in Costa Rica, I found that there was theater, which is something that I didn't have in Honduras. So I started writing about theater in Costa Rica for local websites and a local newspaper. And in 2012, I moved to New York City with the idea of just writing about film full time. But I arrive in New York City and, you know, like all of those like chorus girls from 42nd Street, <laughs> I arrive and how can you not be swallowed whole by theater in New York, right? And soon enough, uh, movies became my mistress, and I was married to theater. And now it's been seven years, and I'm still doing it. I am an attorney. That's my day job. And I was working on a firm on Wall Street on a massive case that was taking years and years and so many hours of my life, and I was very miserable. And I suddenly wondered, why was I still in New York? What was I doing this all for? What did I used to love to do that I had stopped doing? And going to the theater was one of those things. So I just started buying theater tickets because finally I could afford to and didn't always make it to the shows because of my hours at my job, but found myself really excited to be back in sort of an art space. I had been in the film business before becoming a lawyer and it just kind of reinvigorated my passion for the arts. And I got on Twitter and started talking to people and then they wanted to know more of my opinions. And so I started blogging because I needed more space to express myself. And then somehow editors approached me and said, hey, do you want to write for me? And I never really considered any of this. And so I just kind of found my way that through to writing. 
First interview I ever had with John after college was with John Fairchild, then the publisher of Women's Wear Daily, and he said, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? And I said, theater critic of the New York Times. That was many years ago, and I, I don't think either of us thought it was quite, very likely to come true. But, uh, so Women's Wear, I was there for seven years. I, became, I ended as the Paris uh, editor and publisher. Uh, I quit because I thought my life should perhaps take a different direction. It was probably the bravest thing I ever did. But I did. I walked out without another job, but soon found work uh, at uh, under contract Tina Brown first for Condé Na uh, first for the Vanity Fair. And then she took me with her to The New Yorker. At the same time, I was doing on the side movie reviews for Elle magazine. My first editor there was a woman named Alex Switchell, who was going out with a guy named Frank Rich. And when they were looking for a new second string theater critic, this was some time after she left the magazine, she said, um, maybe we should ask Ben Brantley. So uh, Frank called and said, do you want to audition for this? And I said, oh, yeah, right. And then it happened very quickly. And that was 27 years yes, ago. Yes, you've been there ever since. Why do you write about the theater? Well, I write about theater because uh, I'm embarrassed to admit it's really the only way I can think about theater. Uh, I find that when I see a show, uh, if I know I'm not writing about it, I experience it in a very different way, in a much lazier way, in a much more passive way, uh, which I don't like. Uh, I, I would rather be kind of leaning forward and thinking when I'm watching something. And I also often walk out of a show coming out and, and not knowing what I think. I am just sort of a storm of responses and emotions. And the experience of writing about it, having to actually put it down on paper, I find that organization is actually when the thinking gets done and when the analysis starts to happen. So for me, it's that I'm addicted to going to the theater. That's a compulsion, and it is a possibly relationship Ship, uh, destroying compulsion. Uh, hard to stay married to somebody who wants to have dinner every night when you say, I'm going to go to a show every night of our entire lives. But uh, the, the, that compulsion is just going to lead to uh, mental breakdown if I don't also have to organize that experience into writing and into thought. Theater was really the first thing I fell in love with. It's been an obsession of mine since I was, pretty much since I could talk, certainly since I could read. Uh, my granddad taught Shakespeare. Um, and my, probably my most natural predilection is for, like, writing um, papers for English classes. <laughs> but you can't make a living doing that all your life. And, um, and this sort of is translating that particular skill that I honed um, really all through my life. It's so gratifying to write about in a way. I mean, movies, I love movies, and obviously they affect you when you're watching them in a very visceral way often. But with theater, it's just so much more intense because it is living people, and it could all go so wrong in a second or, you know, just soar into the heavens in a second, too. I write about theater because I feel like all of my friends, and especially in college, were always talking about theater, and we were all students who couldn't afford a lot of theater, and it was in Poughkeepsie, so we had to take a train, so it was always like, had to be really worth it to go see it. And I feel like none of us had like critics or reviews that we felt like, if I read Blank Person, I'll know if I want to see it. So we felt like we didn't have the kind of person to help us decide what to see. And I feel like in a world of so much Broadway and so much off-Broadway and people trying to choose what to spend their money on, critics can be really helpful about saying, like, focus on this really great art or this really diverse artist and try to see that. So I'm trying to, like, help steer people towards things that I think are really important and maybe away from things that I think people shouldn't be spending money on. I always felt like the 
art it wasn't complete until I had a conversation about it. Just going to see a movie or a play with friends, if we'd walk out the door and be like, okay, where do you want to get drinks? And that was it. That was the end of it. Just never felt, it wasn't my experience of the world. And I wanted to talk about things and I wanted to talk about them in the context of my life and what was going on and why I'd spent my money and time with this work. So, um, you know, it was never a kind of casual space for me. It was always kind of a thinky space. And, so I think I write because I feel like the conversation needs to happen and I want to be part of that conversation. And I'm always excited by other people's ideas about work that I didn't see that wasn't my experience of the work. And so I guess that whole sort of discussion, dialogue sort of space, even, you know, even if it's just between critics, just between theater fans was what was interesting to me. What is the purpose of theater criticism? Criticism is often the the one remnant of a production you will see. I mean, yes, you can read a, a play, you can read a, a libretto, you can you can look at things on a page. But in theory, it is supposed to be, you know, it is a, a place you can go to and understand the past and understand what has come before. You know, obviously, giant caveat, asterisk, it's one person's opinion at that one point in time. Um, and... But, you know, I'd like to think that it provides, you know, a conversation, a contextual conversation with that moment in time. And sometimes that has a value and sometimes it's like bullshit. And I don't care what somebody thought in 1967 about this show because they're an idiot and time has changed and, you know, women have rights. So <laughs> <laughs> Women are people. <laughs> right. It turns out, right. surprise, um, things we discovered after 1967. I like to think that there is a value to that conversation and that the work should exist in conversation with people. Because mm -hmm. the work can sit on a library shelf and the work can sit in an actor's heart. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, it also should sit in people. And, you know, being able to talk about productions I've seen in the past with other people who saw those productions, it's exciting because it's like, oh, I remember this little bit. Oh, somebody else remembers something else. And it, you know, it brings that work back to life and we have this conversation and then we can see where shades of that pop up in other work. Criticism is an art form. Self-power is criticism. It is a reaction to Rodgers and Hammerstein. And what is it that critics do if not reacting to the art that they either connect with or not? So soft power is to me what criticism looks like. You know, it, and, and my joke that people laugh at often is that I tell them, like, I will be the happiest man alive the day when a review looks like a cookie. Like, bake me a cookie that lets me know what you felt about the great comment. Well, uh, there are, uh, I think there's three. Uh, one of them is, um, it's like all journalism, it's the first draft of history. And it is, if you have had, of course, if you've spent any time in the academy, if you've ever uh, wanted to research a show, if you're ever interested in what has happened, uh, you wind up reading criticism. Uh, and that is uh, because the theater is very fundamentally, very, very much at its heart an act of witnessing. Uh, witnessing doesn't mean anything until you've written it into scripture. So you, uh, for, for me, that's a big part of it, is that that is my, uh, you know, one of the reasons I write criticism is as an act of gratitude as well, to say, well, at least the one thing I can do is I can record what I saw. 
The second thing is that it's a communication with audience and it's a sorting activity. It's a curation activity. And so you have this ability, this wonderful task to try to get the right people to the right shows. And so you, obviously we are blinkered by our own selves, you know, and you have to write through that because uh, we have no other choice, but, but you can say, you know, if you are this kind of person or if you're intrigued by this kind of thinking, you might really, uh, you really might find yourself provoked and excited by this thing. And that is uh, because honest curation, curation that isn't somehow attached to the market or to, or to capitalism is, I think, uh, rare. Uh, and then the third reason uh, why it exists is because we don't, can have a choice. I really think that this is one of these basic human instincts. Theater criticism came out at the same time that theater did, and theater is one of the things that every society develops at some point. And it is a, uh, I think that we don't, I think that, you know, I said, I think theater very deeply at its core is about witnessing, but it's also about judgment. The reason that we all sit together in a group, the reason it looks so much like a trial courtroom, the reason it looks so much like an operating theater is because we are there not just to watch, but to think and to respond. And so uh, theater criticism is that. Everyone in the audience is a theater critic. Uh, we're just the idiots who, for $80 a pop, decided to write it down. What do you think the job of a theater critic is when writing a review? Unlike some critics, I really am trying to write for audiences that are going to see it. I'm from the tri-state, and I went to a lot of matinees with my mom as a kid, and I feel like <laughs> here in Manhattan we don't talk about that that's so much of the audience. And so I really try to write for not just like New York elites who see every single revival of a play, <laughs> but like also the like Jersey, Connecticut, Westchester crowd who are coming in for matinees and musicals. So I'm really trying to like be very realistic about who's going to see it and what they're going to get out of it, which is something I felt like came up a lot last season with King Kong, where I feel like a lot of people who want, would want to see King Kong would actually enjoy it, even though it was like not great art. So I think it's important to try to consider that we have lots of different audiences seeing shows. My job is to be a cheerleader, and my job is to, I can tell you what my job is not also, and my job is not to be the final word on any single piece of art. My job is to be the yes and part the part that says, let's build a bridge between this work of art and the audience and the people who don't have the opportunity to have, you know, their voice amplified, whether on a newspaper, a magazine, a website, or a podcast. I want people to not think of me as some, like, evil, you know, judge, like, you know, like, hiding in some, like, tower or, like, some, like, unmovable, like, horrid figure you know, a marble, sitting, like, laying on, like, a marble pedestal. Like, I want to talk to people. I think that my job is to be, I love AOC, and I think the job of a critic is to kind of be, like, a community organizer and to talk to people and to hold town halls. And that town hall can look like the comment section of a, of a site, which I'd rather it didn't, or it can look like an open invitation for people to talk on Twitter. If I had a patron who wanted to, you know, if wanted to make me like the, the Leonardo to their Medici, I would totally hold weekly town halls and I would go with people to the theater and I would talk to them afterwards about what we just saw. Because there's an aspect of theater, of theater that's extremely uh, elitist. And I want that to not be the case. I want everyone to be able to see theater and to talk about theater, because that's what I love doing. If I had my own outlet, I would probably have like a very specific idea of the person that I would be writing for. But since I'm a freelancer, 
that's complete, that completely depends on the outlet that I'm writing for. I mean, when I write for the Pope, <laughs> I'm thinking of the Pope. Like, no, but, you know, I'm, I'm laughing, but it's true. Like, for instance, to give you an example, when I'm writing for American Magazine, I keep in mind the fact that this is a slightly more conservative audience than probably my readership at the Times or American Theater. Uh, so I want to tell them about the art that I think is interesting without shocking them so much that they don't want to read about it and that they do not want to engage about it. When I write for the New York Times, for instance, um, I want to let people know that there is more to what they think is out there. I want to, you know, let people... I do a lot of research every time I write something for the Times because I want to infuse my work with historical context, and especially with my experience as a queer Latino immigrant. I want that to be in my work, which is something that, I mean, a lot of criticism is mostly white men and who are very smart and very educated, but their backgrounds are so similar that I want to make sure that they know that I'm not coming from the same background and that I have a different story, not a better story or a worse story, it's just a different story to tell. I like to think of myself as kind of a window, ideally. I mean, obviously there's, you know, there's some frame, there's the lattice work, which is your perspective and, and what you bring to it. But ideally I'm trying to create for people who either think or thinking about seeing this, but also people who will never get a chance to see what I'm writing about. I'm trying to recreate the experience of what it was like for this person to watch that at this moment in time to make it as, um, as much of a sensory experience as I can. Okay, this is a big one. What's your writing process? I pitch to my publications initially even what shows I might, you know, cover for them. Um, you know, I, for the stage particularly, I'm, I'm focused on Broadway, but I can occasionally, you know, get their attention for some off-Broadway work <laughs> too. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm already just kind of researching for Exeunt since I'm the managing editor. I'm also looking to see what shows are coming up, what I think writers should be writing about. So I just do a tremendous amount of, you know, reading press releases, sort of seeing what's out there, seeing what's coming up, seeing playwrights' names pop up on multiple emails mm. over time starts to make me think, oh, maybe I should go check out this person's work. What are they doing? Um, so there's there's a lot of that that's already kind of happened. I don't, you know, read the scripts ahead of time unless it's a, a classic I should know in quotes <laughs> that I don't. Maybe sometimes I'll grab that and be like, oh, wait, you know, occasionally with some of the Shakespeare plays that I'm less familiar with, I'm like, let me just quickly read Coriolanus just to remind me what, what it's about. Um, uh, you know, Titus Andronicus before I saw Gary, I was like, I should just skim this <laughs> so I know what right. it's riffing on right. so I'm not completely, you know, out of it. Um, but I don't do a tremendous amount of research necessarily ahead of time. Um, I take a notebook with me. I take notes during the show. Sometimes that's just more of a focus issue. Sometimes it's more of a just, if I'm not going to get the script necessarily, it's just an ordering. Like, wait, which scene came before what? Mm. Um, when was that big outburst scene? Like, <laughs> you know, just so I can kind of, you know, refresh my own recollection when I go to sit down and write about something. Um, and sometimes I never look at those notes. I mean, I take the notes and then, you know, sometimes I can't even read them. Um, it's always Same. a mystery. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I start writing sometimes on the subway ride home. I live in Queens. Um, it takes me a little while. So, you know, it's it's a good place to just start like blah on the page and get something out. So I'm going to hit my word count. I'm not panicked. Um, and if even if that's just the, the plot summary so that I can at least just get the juices flowing um, and throwing out some adjectives and, you know, descriptive 
pieces and bits that are sort of like the emotion, the immediate emotional reaction to something. Um, and then I sit down for, you know, hopefully the same night if I can, if not, then the next day. Um, it usually takes me about four hours. I've never been able to get down to less than that. So I see a play, I controversially like don't take notes during plays. Right. I've been like glared at by like other theater critics <laughs> next to me. And I'm like, where's your notebook? And I'm like, I'm, I'm okay. Um, I like have a great like semi-photographic memory. I can like remember a lot of things. If I have a playbill in front of me, I can like remember basically anything that happened. I'm good if there's like a line I loved, I'll write it down during intermission. But like I don't write things down during it and I usually write something like the next day or the next day or two. Very different from my academic writing. I try to get like as much as I need. Like I try to get a thousand words down on the page and then go back and see what I want to change about it. And I feel like reviews are something that come like really organically out of me. Like I write it and then sometimes afterwards I'm like, oh, that came out much more positive or much more critical than I want. But I like that because it feels more true and organic. Like that's what was, the review was hiding within me and it just came out. I never read the scripts beforehand. I think that's a disservice to the production that we're about to see because it's never going to live up to what we imagined, right? Because if that was the case, like, every production not starring Audra McDonald would be a disappointment to me because I would be like, oh, Audra would be great in this part, in this part, in this part. <laughs> You'd be casting, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'd never read anything in advance, but because critics get the scripts sent to them every single time, I also don't take notes. I try to immerse myself into the production as much as I can. When the show is over, depending on my deadline, I either have to write something right away or not. And when the time comes for writing, I clean my house, I you know clean my bathtub, <laughs> I go grocery shopping, and when I'm like an hour away from my deadline, I start writing. You know, the other reason I'm a theater critic is because there's deadlines and I am just rubbish at writing without a deadline, so it's quite useful that there is just deadline, deadline, deadline in this business. Uh, oof. I, you know, one opens one's laptop, uh, one complains uh, to whoever is nearby that one has to write that day. Uh, I, you know, usually for me, um, if I'm being good, I write a tiny bit the minute I see it, so on the subway or uh, the minute that I get home. And then I wake up in the morning uh, as early as I can, and then I write based on those thoughts. Uh, so, for instance, in two-part plays, when I saw The Inheritance, I wrote between the shows because I knew that the second half was going to really color how I experienced the first half. And I was very glad I did that because my my feelings changed a lot, and I was glad to have that kind of record. Uh so some of it is that I just have to write as quickly as I can. Uh, the, there are some other kind of boring things, like I get stuck a lot or, I mean, I never have writer's block, but because you can always be talking about the show, uh, but there are little tricks that I have if I don't know how to approach something. So uh, there's Goethe's three questions. So if I need to, I can ask myself those questions, which are, uh, what is the work trying to achieve? How is it trying to achieve it? And was it worth the attempt? Uh, and trying to answer that. So I do it to myself almost like it's a little questionnaire. What is this work trying to achieve? Uh, partially, I do that because I do not want to ask myself the question, did you like it or did you not like it? Mm. Because that's so boring. <laughs> uh, Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I do, uh, you can tell when I'm really stuck, 
this is a real tell of mine, is I started out as a set designer. And if I am really stuck, I start talking about the set right away. Uh, because often what I see is what I wind up thinking about. And so uh, I will, if I think I'm not actually sure that I know what I thought about the show, what did I think? I just start describing it. And then as my eye moves around the stage, I realize what it was catching on, what it was held by, and therefore what it thought was important. And then I can start writing my way towards an argument from there. I mean, I certainly hate everything I'm writing while I'm writing it. Uh, then the moment of turning it in is a moment of such intense shame uh, and surrender and acknowledgement that you're just a piece of trash. Uh, and then and then it comes back to you with some edits and you think, oh, it's you can rescue it. And then you send it out. And then if you're either, either you become insufferable about it. I've occasionally thought, well, you know what, that was actually amazing. What a, what a wonderful and stellar talent I am. Mostly, though, I just forget it. Like once it's done, it's out of your life, thank God. There's not a single piece that I've ever written that I'm completely satisfied with. I would go back and rewrite the hell out of everything. Someone tweeted this not too long ago, and they said that one of the saddest things about being a writer is that as you know, as you get older and you mature, your writing from the past really never matures with you. Like what we said 20 years ago is there forever, <laughs> and people will go find it. Yeah. And people don't allow people the chance to grow anymore. What's hardest to write, a rave, a pan, or a mixed review? Raves are the easiest to write. I mean, unless it's a unless it's sort of an esoteric person or a group uh, that you're trying to explain to people who might not normally venture into those you know surreal precincts. But um, but generally, a rave is just oh, you feel so good doing it because you are enthusiastic. I mean, if you if you really feel it, I mean, I think faking it is not a good idea. I think you can always tell when a critic's faking it. The reviews I'm proudest of are probably the mixed ones where you actually said this is interesting for this reason. It doesn't work for this reason, but it has something um, because it's, it's harder to achieve that balance. And you also know readers don't want to read mixed reviews. We're a thumbs up, thumbs down culture. Did you love it? Did you hate it? I mean, it has to be one or the other. And if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, we don't ever respond unconditionally to anything. All emotions are mixed. The easiest thing to write is a negative review, which is uh, one of the reasons why people do sort of hate us sometimes, is you can tell, you can tell how fast the words come out when you hate something. And uh, and that's repulsive to the people who made it because they think, you know, I spent six months of my life on this and you clearly, you know, you were screaming this into the notes app on your cell phone <laughs> for probably the minute you left the theater. And then the second easiest to write is the positive review because you just... Uh, criticism is description, and so you just get to sit there and describe something that you loved. I mean, that's a thrill. Uh, and then, and then, obviously, the mixed review is just impossible because, because uh, as you know, as a writer, placement structure is everything about your argument. And so, you if you write a mixed review, let's say you have a two paragraph mixed review. I don't write two paragraphs anymore, but at timeout, for instance, I had to write two paragraphs all the time. So let's say you're writing a two-paragraph review and you felt totally mixed about the thing. If you write the positive thing first and the negative thing second, then it's a negative review. If you write the negative thing first and the positive thing second, then it's a positive review. And that can be those two paragraphs can be identical. Just exchanging their position changes the tone of the review completely. And 
uh, that that uh, sitting on that knife's edge, I find really stressful. I find mixed reviews really hard to write because a mixed review usually means I'm not very passionate about it. So then I find it hard to write about because I'm like, well, this part was good, but this part was bad. And like, I liked this, but this didn't work. And I feel like when I end up writing those, so many of my sentences end up with the same structure like that, where it's always like, despite a really great performance by blank, the overall direction weakened the piece. And it's like, despite this, this, and like, I just feel like I keep writing sentences where I have to pit a good and a bad. And yeah, I, I love writing rave reviews. Writing pans isn't great. I, I hate being mean to shows. I'm not one of those people who like loves making really mean puns. Like I, I don't think that's what criticism should be about. But I do think that like a pan and a rave are much easier to write for me because you just have strong opinions and it's easy to write strong opinions. <laughs> The mess stuff, I think, is always the hardest because you really have to kind of dig back into something that you didn't, you know, didn't come to you on sort of the initial, you know, experience of it. And I sometimes liken it to being asked to go eat at the restaurant that gave you food poisoning. (laughs) You have to go back to this place that you didn't have a great time um, and then relive everything about it to figure out, like, why didn't this work? Or, or, you know, what was what was wrong? Where did it all go wrong? What made me sick? Um, and, you know, sometimes that can be really unpleasant when it's something you're like, I just, I don't care. I don't think you guys cared in making this work. Like, I don't know. It just wasn't, you know, it wasn't enough. It was just sitting there in the middle and you're like, I don't know why this happened. <laughs> I don't know why this got programmed. I don't know why I got invited. And so then you really <laughs> have to dig in and, you know, sort of that's unfortunately like your job starts there and then you have to dig in and figure out like what, what, what was going on? Why, why wasn't this giving you something. Um, I think also works that are so great, that are just beyond compare, that you love so deeply are really hard to write about because you're like, this is never going to live up to my experience of it. And I want you to feel the way I feel about this show. And somehow I feel like my words will never get to that place to express what I'm feeling. You have a favorite refrain that you've, um, you know, since I follow you on Twitter, that you've shared multiple times, which is, you know, I've written a thousand words and all of them are wrong. (laughs) You know, about like angels in America, right? right? Or some, some great work that you love so much and, you know, but the words are just, they're there. They're there. They're just not right. Right. The ones just, I yeah, wish they just yeah. They're were. not Tony Kushner. So <laughs> right. what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. It's it's hard. It's hard when you're faced with something. That, yeah. That you just want to express that that greatness. Um. And you're like, I'm not as good an artist as they are. So how am I ever going to get there? And what I have to say. Um. So I think that can be hard too. I mean, I don't enjoy pans, but they're sometimes easier because it's like, well, I know what was wrong. Everything, you know, and you right. make your laundry list. Um. But sometimes there too, you're sort of like, you know. If it's a smaller work, it's a smaller company, it's emerging artists who are just, you know, trying something new and they kind of miss the mark. You know, I'm not looking to tear people down. It's like, okay, well, how can I make this a constructive conversation then? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is there a difference between a review and criticism? Yeah, I never quite know what people are arguing about when they argue at that point. It's just bullshit and semantics. Yeah, like a review can look, you know, when I when I talk to, because people ask me to talk to young people, I don't know why. When people ask me to talk to young people about criticism and about all of that, that's all a ton of bullshit. Like, unless you're writing a PR release where it's obviously aimed for one very specific reason, uh, criticism can take any shape. Very easy. Yeah. A review is for something that's open. Criticism is for something that's closed. Oh, okay. Right? There so criticism go. is when you go, when you push into the record. A review is something which is keyed towards somebody who's trying to decide if they should go or not. And for us, because we, we work in the ways that we do, we're always writing something which is a little half and half. Mm. I'm writing a review right now of Slave Play for an academic journal. Mm. And so that's been a real weird thing where sometimes editors have told me when I'm writing like a journalism piece that my writing can sometimes veer too academic. And then in grad school, I'm told sometimes your stuff feels a little too informal. So like <laughs> navigating exactly what that means is really interesting. And I've just started kind of writing pieces that are less reviews and more like state of the field, bigger criticism pieces like at American theater or like the slave play thing. And that's been definitely something to navigate that's less just about one single production and more about like what's happening in a season or what's happening with the art form right now. And it's definitely something to juggle. I really like it because I feel like I get to use more like critical reasoning, grad school English <laughs> vibes there to like not just talk about like a lighting designer specific actor's performance. So I really like that we can have both kind of genres. Mm. And they overlap. They overlap a lot. A lot like right. the Slave Play one is an academic piece, but it's a review just of the play, but not necessarily of the production. So it's Got like it. getting to kind of fuse it all at once. Mm. Do you think theater critics are part of the theater community? They're sort of, they're at the family reunion, but they're not the person you're most excited to see. <laughs> uh, you know, as like a weird cousin. Uh, with a past. I, I think, yes, certainly, of course, because we're all sort of feeding on the same Leviathan, you know, uh, that yes, certainly critics are part of the community and really good critics. Uh, I definitely do not include myself in this. Really good critics are practitioners. So you've got people like Feingold, who was a translator, uh, David Cody, who's a librettist, Adam Feldman, who sings cabaret. The, I mean, these are people who are, uh, really, um, on the one hand, you have that that that's a path to being a great seer and writer is to actually truly know the field by being part of it. Obviously, we've also had people who are completely external to the field, like Hilton Owls, who were great, great watchers. Uh, so it isn't absolutely necessary, but it is. It is. It can be kind of part of a well-rounded critic. I certainly feel very friendly towards a lot of different people who make shows. Uh, I am incredibly fond of the people who've been around for as long as I have, even if I've never exchanged a word with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and also theater is hugging, so we're all hugging each other all the time anyway, so it's <laughs> like we're friends. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think uh, 
I, I think it's a sort of, it's a fraught question, uh, but it's only a question because incontrovertibly they are part of the community. They're just a kind of weird part, you know, awkward part. And then there's Helen Shaw, weird cousin with a weird past. Weird cousin right? with exactly. a past, yeah. exactly. Like standing by the punch and everyone's like, oh God, to get to the punch, we go by her. It's so strange because they are, but they like pretending that they're not. I think we're members of the theatrical community when it benefits us. Mm. And then we remove ourselves when it doesn't work out for us. I think they absolutely are a member of the theater community. When I was in college, it was called the drama department. <laughs> and we all had to call ourselves theater makers. <laughs> like no one, and no one was allowed to do one thing. Like you mm. couldn't just act. You also like had to do some kind of design or writing or direction. And I feel like I really, I like roll my eyes at that at the time, but I feel like I really love that model that like we're all theater makers and we're all doing a lot of things and putting things all together. I really do think critics are part of the ecosystem. They're part of a feedback loop. I think the best theater critics out there are ones that were or currently are artists. It's no surprise that Sarah Holdren was and is directing again and is one of the best theater critics in history. Like when they're all part of the feedback loop, I think it really helps. I think on the surface, theater critics come across as gatekeepers and saying what shouldn't shouldn't be happening and being produced on Broadway and off and what shouldn't shouldn't audiences be going to. I really try not to think of myself as a gatekeeper at all. I think as someone that's like standing on a highway that has a lot of lanes and kind of like pointing people in a direction that I like. But like they're gonna they're gonna go where they wanna go. I'll scream at Tootsie as long as I want, but like it stayed open for too long. <laughs> but like I can still scream about it on the side of the road and hope less cars go over there. And they did. So. And they did. Yeah. And they did. So yeah, I'm not trying to like be a gatekeeper, but I'm trying to encourage people to go in a direction that I think is a, a good direction for theater. How has social media changed theater criticism? I mean, I wouldn't exist as a critic, but for Twitter, um, I, you know, I, my work wouldn't have been found without Twitter. I wouldn't have, I would never have approached editors about like, I should write for you. <laughs> um, I never would have done any of that. Uh, so the, the Twitter sort of allowing me to kind of have my opinions live out loud was a really good kind of testing ground to then start writing, to start, you know, sort of this practice. Um, I mean, I've also been massively burned by Twitter. So mm. good times, good times. Uh, <laughs> never let your tweets go viral. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 so I think it's a really important tool. I wouldn't I wouldn't be working in the UK in the way in which I am without Twitter. I mean, it, you know, it eliminates a lot of borders and boundaries and space and limits for people, um, you know, and because it is a written medium for me, it was exactly what I needed. And it was the, it was, it is a format and a style that suits my voice really, really well. Twitter basically makes criticism democratic. And there's also the fact that there's paywalls, a lot of the outlets that we all write for. So I also think it's our responsibility on Twitter to not, I don't want to, I, 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 I need a good word for this, someone help me. Because it's not digest, but it's like maybe turn into bite-sized, uh, turn our larger ideas into bite-sized invitations for people to participate in dialogue with us. Twitter not only humanizes us, but it helps us be more grounded because we are very lucky to be doing what we do. And we are very privileged. 
We need to not only let people into the actual space, but we need to let people know that we want to talk to them. Like it's, it is so, uh, it's not boring, but I would rather not only talk about theater with other theater people. There's nothing that I love more than to hear people's dissenting opinions. And even that word is so ugly. Uh, you know, I, I love hearing people's different opinions. Like yeah. mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't like the idea of like dissenting opinions or contrarian opinions because it just pits people against each other. And the truth is that we're all just so different that I'm just like, I'm just so fascinated by your worldview, regardless of your, you know, what you are. And that's what I love. So I wasn't on Twitter until like two years ago and I got it because of being a critic and I was told this is a, like a really great forum to talk about theater. I'm not on Instagram. I don't love social media that's about like visual things and like our bodies and getting likes. So I really do like Twitter that's about being like funny and witty and sharing your writing and having like conversations, not about like selfies. Um, but social media has become such a really, really big thing. And it's really helped me think about like your first question about who I'm writing for, like unexpectedly because of the kinds of pieces I'm writing that are usually like attacking establishment. I like very quickly, very unexpectedly got a massive number of teenage and young adult followers on Twitter that are like Broadway stands and like know every understudy's name and are like <laughs> obsessed. And it's like a whole world I did not know existed. Like I thought I was a theater nerd in high school, but I was not at this level. And I love them. And I've learned so much about how young people engage with theater. And it's really informed the kind of things that I want to write. Uh, I just wrote a piece about like young adult theater and The Lightning Thief and about like a disconnect that's happening between critics and audiences and the people writing the shows and the representation we're getting. And that was so inspired by me being on social media and me learning so much on Twitter from my young fans that like my writing and I talk to a lot. But I do think that separate from just me personally that Twitter is a, such an important space for theater critics because we're liking each other's work, we're sharing each other's work, we're subtweeting each other, <laughs> we're debating about different things. And I think it's a really unexpectedly important space for theater criticism. If you could change one thing about the current ecosystem of theater criticism, what would it be? I would change the demographic of who the critics are that everyone's reading and that are getting published. I think it's I'm really young, so it's easy for me to be like bitter that every all the critics are like much older than me and all the same people and they're all getting paid a lot and I'm not and everyone's reading them and they're not reading me. But I really, it's just like, it's not just about me and I'd be fine if I wasn't a theater critic, but also if they weren't a theater critic. Like I think there are just too many like straight, white, old, or not straight, but just too many white, old men that are writing theater reviews out there. I love and respect so many of the established critics, but they're all white, middle-aged men and women. And uh, as much as I admire their education and their insight, there are worldviews that we are missing out on, not because there's no place at the table for them, but because we don't want to make a place at the table for them. And people need to understand that it's not, when we talk about representation, we're not talking about stealing people's jobs, but talking about adding an extra plate on the table. 
everything's broken. It's hard to pick just one. I feel like I'm, I showed up at like the end of the party and, you know, the heyday is over and I'm there for the like last three pieces of cheese on the cheese plate. Um, and they're sad and sweaty pieces of cheese. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm thrilled that people pay me to write and, uh, Editors are always apologizing to me for what the pay is, and I'm always laughing because I'm like, well, this is more than zero. So for me, it's more than I was getting when I was blogging. Um, but I know for writers who've been at it for 20 years, like these numbers are just not, you know, doable. And I don't, I only freelance because I have a full time job um, and I can, and I, I, that subsidizes my ability to do that. Uh, you know, and that also sucks because the people who can work in this space then are very, you know, you're limited by who can afford to do this. And that's a problem um, fundamentally. I think it's also a problem that simply, I don't know why you would ever encourage young people to go into this field going forward if it's a field that might not really exist in, you know, a for the form that it is now in five years from now. Um, and I've had, you know, critics say, oh, I want you to talk to this young person and talk them out of becoming a critic. <laughs> and I've had multiple critics try to talk me out of becoming a critic. So, you know, it is, you know, it is a thing we're passing all along, which is sort of sad because I want criticism to exist. And I mean, that's why Exion exists. You know, it's a, a volunteer platform and no one's getting paid and we're all doing it because we love it or care about it or whatever. And for me, in my head, it's sort of, well, it's a place I want people to be able to start out and be able to get some clips and move on from there, hopefully maybe to more paid work down the road, which is what how it worked for me. Um, but I don't even know if that road exists for them in the future. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to see it still be a career choice for people, which is such a crazy thing to say. I was able to write for as long as I did uh, before getting the job I have now is a job, is a real job. Uh, and it uh, is a luxury that I'm still getting used to. Um, it's really, really thrilling. But the reason I was able to uh, work as a theater critic for 14 or 15 years before I got an actual job doing it uh, was because I had a day job that I worked that entire time that paid my way. Uh, I very rarely made very much money writing criticism. Uh, I think the most I ever made in a year was something like $15,000, and that was uh, right at the end of um, my the freelance career. Uh, and that is, uh, I was able to do it, and I was willing to do it, but it means that uh, it, there are so many people who can't do it. So the fact that there's no jobs, uh, there's only freelance opportunities, is I, for me the main issue. Because it also means that some of our best writers are having to wear two hats. And so uh, a lot of really interesting writers are also having to edit because that's where the actual job is. Uh, imagine if, you know, people just had the luxury to just write. They didn't also have to do the listings. They didn't also have to, you know, commission a piece. Uh, and then, and then, because of that, that is what has led, I think, or is allowing to continue to exist the sort of massive age, gender, not gender so much anymore, but uh, certainly age and race disparity, is that you uh, have. Uh, it's not a bargain that everyone is able to make. It's not available to everybody. Uh, saying to a young person, you're going to work for 15 years and you will never make any money at this. And then maybe at the end of it, there will be one of the five jobs in the city. Maybe you'll get that. 
is uh, not the way to welcome in new voices, new talent. Uh, and it's and it's what has left us with um, a very increasingly diverse but still quite white group of people. And, uh, and also, uh, people think of me as a young critic, which is hilarious because I'm 43, I'm so old. And, uh, and, but that's how distorted it is. It's because, you know, we, everything has to be shifted way forward uh, because the opportunities for actually young people are so paltry. I mean, to me, honestly, the way to solve it is universal healthcare. Uh, because I think if you have, uh, if, 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 if a person could live on $15,000 a year, oh, that changes the whole situation. If $15,000 a year means that you live with six roommates somewhere, okay. But you can't live on $15,000 a year if it means you'll die if you're hit by a truck. So, uh, so I think that in a way I don't actually expect suddenly money to come flooding into the theater um, that just, that isn't, that, it hasn't worked that way since Syracuse, you know? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, the, but what we could be doing is we could be actually building a New York again where, you know, you could be Edward Albee and you could make a living as a telegram man. Oscar Eustace talks a lot about the fact that democracy and theater were invented in the same town in the same decade. And, uh, Core to Athenian democracy was the jury, not the judge, but the jury. Obviously, their juries were enormous, uh, 50, 100 men. And if theater criticism were truly healthy, that's what our juries would look like too. When William Gibson wrote the season, uh, he, William Goldman wrote the season... William Gibson wrote Neuromancer, kind of different. <laughs> uh, when William Goldman wrote the season, he there's one throwaway line in it that just kills me in which he says, you know, I've done a quick survey of how many Broadway critics there are on any given opening night, and there's about 110. At which point I think about throwing myself in front of the nearest bus because 110 opening night critics. Mm. Oh. But that's the size of an Athenian jury, right? Is that actually, no, 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 we are not judges. No. But we are jury members, as is every member of the audience. We are jury members. And so we can write down what we think. We can give our judgment to be put into the common group of judgments. Um, I don't, because I, I do, you know, a lot of talk recently has been about the aggression that is, that is inherent in criticism. And that is true, too. That is, uh, criticism is an aggressive act. Anytime that someone speaks to you honestly about what they think of something that you made when you were in a position of vulnerability, what they are doing is they are doing something aggressive. Uh, you get a haircut, your mother says that looks stupid, that's aggressive. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, isn't it better to know than not to know? Uh, and, and also, uh, again, if we constantly remind ourselves that we are a member of a jury and we are not the judge, uh, it, is, it diffuses that responsibility, and I think it actually allows us to become more honest and more specific about our responses. For our final question, what do you think is in store for the future of theater criticism? If we do not take the steps right now, like climate change, it won't change at all. It'll just be this removed, remote, completely classist form that people, you know, people think we're bad people. 
Like people are like, oh, fuck critics. I'm going to go do whatever we want. Uh, we're going to go do whatever we want. And we need to take steps to make people know that we want them to be a part of what we're doing, that we're not writing for fucking Marie Antoinette and, you know, Versailles. We are writing for everyone and we want people to be a part of what we are doing. I, you know, if I put my future classes on right now, I would probably say the same things that we're doing right now and I don't like it. I, but if I put my classes on and like have a vodka shot, I would see different mediums and I would see us respecting different mediums more. I would see critics, groups and organizations allowing people without, you know, their idea of what they think a critic should be or look like enter these spaces and enter these clubs. I also would like to challenge theater makers and artists to tell us stories in a different way that challenge the way that we approach our work. I want us to challenge the form more and I want us to stop thinking that we know that we've arrived at the ultimate form of criticism. I want that motherfucking cookie review. I don't know. I'm really worried because I, you know, I do edit a platform that invites new writers and anyone to come and bring their opinions. And I'm not getting, you know, as many emails as I used to. Um, people aren't hitting me up for, you know, oh, I'm interested in maybe writing for you guys. And, you know, that could be just me. Nobody wants to write for me. It's fine. Um, but I think it actually might be a little bit more indicative of a space where, you know, people aren't really, I mean, again, are being sort of discouraged from pursuing it. And I like to think, I mean, I talk a lot about it on Twitter and I like to be transparent. I like to, you know, talk about the fact that I have three jobs. I'm an attorney, I am a freelance journalist, and I'm an editor of a website. And I treat those as three separate jobs. Um, but they, I also want people to know that like those things can coexist and do coexist and it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be, I have to, you know, live on ramen and have 12,000 roommates to be able to become a journalist and that's the only path here. Um, or I have to have a degree in this and I have to spend all this money on a graduate degree. And I, I, I feel very, it's very important to let people know there aren't those limits and that really, you know, it is... It is about having opinions, but it's also about being able to write. And it's those two things together that make you a critic and you can do that um, if you, you know, hone those skills. And I, I you know, I, I want there to be a space for people to to do this. And I think the the difficulties around criticism has lately has a lot been about sort of professionalism and what makes a professional. And I spent years putting quotes around the word, oh, I'm a critic with quotes. You know, I never felt like I could just come out and say I was a critic because of all of those reasons. And, you know, I I don't want other people to feel sheepish about it. I think, you know, um, we need to encourage, I, I, you know, I want this space to continue. I want this profession to continue. I want people to do this. And I think we need to have an understanding then that it's going to look a lot more like what I'm doing these days than maybe what some of my, you know, sort of more senior colleagues who had a full-time newspaper job for many, many, many years look like. I know that a couple people, like Roxanne Gay did it a couple times recently, that like have been like just like tweeting out reviews. Like very short form, write a thread, write a single tweet review of what something is. And I, when I see shows, because I don't have time to review everything, sometimes I'm like, I could write a great thread about this. Like, <laughs> I don't have time for a really a thousand word polished review, but I could write a great thread about this. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, because I feel like we're not there yet. But I think we're getting there, and I think that would be a really, really cool place for theater criticism to go. 
Theater really, I think, needs to adjust. We need to adjust how we write about theater, how we talk about theater, and what kind of theater is being produced. Or like you said, like it's in danger. Like opera is really in danger, but like theater (laughs) is also in danger. I think the future of theater criticism is going to be people who write uh, cultural criticism and that theater is one pillar within that. So let's talk about like Soraya McDonald, for instance, who writes for The Undefeated. Her areas of expertise are theater, opera, and tennis. She's a per- and television. She's been writing about The Watchmen. She is, and she's very good at those four pillars. And I think that's actually the way that criticism gets healthy is because it means that her audiences for those four different things are interlocking and braiding and reading all the different things that she has to say about the different forms. Her People who read her about Serena Williams are also reading her about Watchmen, which means they're also reading her about Oklahoma. That's good. That is good for the health of criticism. It is also good for the health of the culture. And I think that's probably the future, is that because of the way that the internet works, the internet wants us to kind of diversify and to scramble uh, our interests and to share them, uh, as opposed to just being one-trick pony like me. Um, I think that is, I think that's what you're getting, is you're getting people who can write, if you read Vincent Cunningham, for instance, he, he can write about film uh, in a way that I would, I, I mean, I could only dream about being able to write about uh, film and music. So you get these people who are actually polymaths and that the internet and social media is actually a very welcoming place for the polymath. Um, for the monomaniac, not so much, but but for them it is. And I think that's probably, I think that is, is if, if the form's going to keep getting healthier, then I think that's how it will do it. Well, with these five people writing about the theater, thinking about the theater, talking about the theater, I feel very good about the future of theater criticism. So do I. Right? I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot that folks just talked about that is alarming about the discipline itself. Um but it's so intrinsic to doing theater, right? Theater criticism. It's, it's, it's a part of it. And I don't know how you can have theater without theater criticism. Um, so I feel pretty hopeful. And I hope what came across over the course of this episode is how much the people who write about the theater love the theater, right? Because, I, you know, these critics, they're, they're a bit of a mystery, I think, to most people. Um, they're... Their names are bylines that you might see in passing or, you know, you look for a certain person's pieces. Um, but if they were walking down the street or if you saw them in the theater, you wouldn't know who they are. Um, and they're sort of anonymous. And, you know, we asked that question, are you are, are critics a part of the theater community? And there's, you know, some people think they are, some people think they aren't. And um, regardless of where you land on that, I think they're a very anonymous part of the theater world. And I don't know that many people would disagree with that. Um, so this was a real treat. I'm glad we got to do it. And I hope that that, that sense of, of, of love and affection for the theater came across over the course of the episode. I think if we've learned one thing in doing the show for a year and a half is that pretty much everyone that works in the theater does it because they love the theater. Yeah, they don't and do it for the money. They don't, they don't do it for <laughs> the money. certainly not the critics. <laughs> I also think it's interesting, This the, the anonymity that comes with being a theater critic yeah. reminds me sort of a food critic, right? Mm, yeah, nobody, totally. No, nobody really knew what Frank Bruni looked like when mm-hmm. he wrote for the Times, and I think this, or much about him. Now yeah. we know a great deal about him because he's in a different capacity right. And as a writer. And, and I think the same is true of Ben Brantley. Mm-hmm. And I feel like most of 
the critics, with the exception of some of the younger critics who were on Twitter, and that was something we talked about sure. too, which is you know the the the. The, how social media has changed that and yeah. who uses social media and who doesn't. Right. And I just think it's interesting as we look towards the future of criticism and and how it's going to change and how that format changes, we might get to know the critics a bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you just brought up Ben Brantley because if you're listening to the episode, you might have noticed that there was there was a lot more of Ben at the beginning and there was less of him as, as, as time went on. Uh, and the reason for that is that we actually did a full sit-down interview, a, a, a classic Fabulous Invalid episode interview with, um, with Ben Brantley that is going to be airing later in the season. So, how could we not? Exactly, right. I mean, I think, you know, uh, with respect to everything, Everyone, you know, I, I'm I'm a critic, um, and we talk to you know a bunch of different folks. Um, you know, Ben Brantley occupies sort you know certainly his own kind of space uh, in the theater world because he's been doing it for so long, right? And doing it so for so long at the sort of top post, if you will, um, as the chief theater critic of the New York Times for 20, he's been at the Times for 27 years. It's remarkable. Yeah, which is a longevity that you know um, is is nearly unmatched. I mean, Brooke, Brooks Atkinson was. Was at the Times, I think, for about thirty or forty years. So, you know, he's Ben's on his way to uh, to I didn't achieving that Brooks same status. Atkinson was there that long for a long time. Yeah, from the twenties to the sixties. Do you yeah. think someday there'll be a Ben Brantley Theater? I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's funny. There are there are two theaters on Broadway named after critics, and uh, the Walter Kerr and the Brooks Atkinson. And there's a theater named after a publicist, uh, Samuel J. Friedman. Um, but it's funny, you know. It makes you wonder if if any of today's critics would get a, you know, it's it's, it's from such an earlier era that those theaters were named. Well, I know if you had your way, there'd be a Helen Shaw right away. There absolutely would. I think I'm going to unmask myself right here. I am a diehard Helen Shaw fan. Let's and, break ground on that theater yeah, now. I would I would welcome. I would I would donate money to the Helen Shaw Theater. Uh, I would be delighted for that to happen. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, with that perfect setup, we're actually going to close the episode with something uh, that Helen said that we thought was quite poignant. Peter Sellers said, a show is over when you stop thinking about it. That's how long a show is. A show could be 50 minutes long, but it doesn't end until you stop thinking about it. It's like, um, you know, the belief that says you don't die until the last person on earth says your name for the last time. And the same goes with shows, is that, that shows are, the, the, the tip of the iceberg is the event in the theater, and then the bulk of that thing is actually what it does to you for the rest of your life. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes and wherever you find podcasts. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the amazing Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman and Charles Van Kirk. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday.
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.